Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. So glad you're here. Welcome to Portico Church Arlington. I am Nate, one of the pastors here, and I specifically am pastor of community and families. I oversee those ministries as well as some other things, but I get to um, preach here this morning and share God's word with you. And um, yeah, as I was studying and preparing for this, I was kind of overwhelmed by one really big problem for me, but then also I think for us as a culture, as a church. And that problem is, is that we don't take evil seriously. Um, we, we talk about evil maybe if we're in certain circles, but even when we talk about it, there's a disconnect between how we talk about it, how we feel about it, and then what we say about it, and then even how we live. And so as we are in the middle of this series in Revelation, going through um, seeing what God wanted to show John to then show us, we are going to be confronted with something this morning, and that is the reality and the nature of evil. But first, we have to just realize and confess that we don't take evil seriously. Um, there's a book I was reading by Tara Isabella Burton. She's an author and a journalist, and she kind of writes about um, spirituality and religion in the West, especially in the United States. Um, and her book is called Strange Rights. And she's kind of describing the religious impulses of people, even when they don't think that they have religious impulses. And one of the kind of anecdotes that she uses to kind of show this and to demonstrate this is um, this really... I want to go, kind of, but um, she writes about this, this McKittrick Hotel, and it's in Manhattan's Ch Chelsea neighborhood, so like one of the most kind of hip neighborhoods in the country, and the McKittrick Hotel was bought out by this British theater company, Punch Drunk, and they do kind of this immersive theater experience where you, where you kind of literally walk through the hotel in various rooms and you take part in the play that they're putting on. And it sounds really fun, um, but she, she says that people get addicted to this. Like they go 200 times and it's $100 a pop to go to this. But there's something that's so intimate, so sacred, so transcendent that is offered in this hotel, in this play, that they get hooked. And it creates kind of this cult following. Um, they are famous, most famous for their production of Macbeth that they call Sleep No More. And um, this is what she says about how the people, the audience, respond to one of the famous characters in the play Macbeth by Shakespeare, um, who is Hecate. Hecate is kind of like this goddess of the witches, and she's kind of like the ringleader of the witches. So this is what she says about it. She says, the witches were evil, sure, but they were also fun. The way Milton's Satan was fun from Paradise Lost. Hecate's signature appearance, the reveal at almost every party, was that she and the witchy acolytes were behind some incident or another, and this engendered applause, not offense. So this little anecdote exposes this 
reality about us that many of us naturally have, and we kind of think that there might be two kinds of so-called evil. There's like this really small portion of people and maybe even events that are actually really evil. And that happens, you know, such a small percentage of the time that, um, you know, that then punishment is deserved. And society kind of determines what those things are and what we agree upon what evil is. But then there's this other type of evil. And this is the fun kind of evil. It's the evil that's harmless. It doesn't harm anybody. And we get uncomfortable with anyone who thinks that that kind of evil, so-called evil, deserves judgment. We get really uncomfortable when we think about God punishing people for that kind of evil. And so what Revelation 9 is going to do, what this trumpet scene has been doing and is continuing to to do and now kind of gets laser focused, is it pulls back the veil of our lives and it shows true reality, the nature of evil, by giving John a vision of what happens when God stops restraining evil. When God starts to let out some of the leash that he is restraining evil with. What happens to us? What happens to people that we know? What happens to our neighbors? What happens to this world? The picture that we're gonna see is one picture. It doesn't differentiate. There is evil singular and it removes any room for us to think that evil can be fun. So join me in reading, follow along. We're gonna be in Revelation. We're gonna start actually in the last verse of chapter eight because it kind of introduces in this really epic way the chapter and we're gonna read all of chapter nine. So starting in verse 13 of chapter 8, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun of the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. 
They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we take so much for granted. We assume that this world really isn't that bad, that we really aren't that bad, and we ignore the fact that you are showering this world, everyone, with grace. That your goodness is restraining the limits of what evil can do. And so Lord, this morning here, as we're confronted with a picture of what it looks like, Lord, I ask that you would humble us, that you would, um, that you would drive us to you. That you would drive people who have been known by you and loved by you to you again and again, and that you would call people, maybe for the first time, who don't know you, that you'd call them and that they would take shelter in your arms. Lord, we need your spirit to help us do that. We ask that we would hear what you have for us through your word, and Lord, we ask that you would make it effective to our hearts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So we don't take evil seriously. And this picture that we're getting from the fifth and the sixth trumpets is that evil is horrifyingly dangerous. There's no other way to read this. And it makes us really uncomfortable on some level because like I said, the judgments of the fifth and the sixth trumpets are getting a little bit more intense, but notice they also got more focused. Trumpets one through four from last week, if you remember, were kind of general. They were happening to everybody, 
over all the earth, and so we can kind of understand that. But now as we zoom in, the fifth and sixth trumpets are for those who, only those who don't have the seal of the lamb. And so this reminds us again of um, that vision of the 144,000, all of them sealed. That is the entirety, the complete, complete number of God's people who have been sealed in all eternity. And hey, do we have seals on our foreheads right now? Like, <laughs> yeah, Alex, yeah, we do. Well, we do, but to whose eyes? To God's eyes. God knows. We don't know this, though. And so for us, as we're reading this, there's kind of like the, we have to resist the temptation to put ourselves into God's place and to start imagining that we know who this is and who this isn't. We just have to take in the picture of what happens to those who don't and what happens to those who do. And we'll get there. But this is really clear that this is what John's doing because there's this threefold repetition to introduce this section. And it's really weird in scripture when you see words repeated three times. It happens twice every now and then, like amen, amen, Jesus says that sometimes. But three times, that's a lot, and there's really only one other word that gets repeated three times. Do you guys know what it is? Holy. Remember back in chapter four, the picture of the throne room and all of the, um, all of the angelic beings worshiping God in the throne room? Holy, holy, holy. Well, now that's contrasted very intentionally. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We see God in his throne room, and now we're seeing a different throne, the throne of darkness. And so we're going to walk through, for the majority of our time together, we're going to walk through the ways that evil is horrifyingly dangerous and why it's horrifyingly dangerous, because that's what the text is doing. It's showing us that. And so this first um, reason evil is horrifyingly dangerous because it is united in rebellion. It flows right out of that reality that this is a new throne, that this is a new people who are worshiping a different God on a different throne room. And so evil is dangerous and it's horrifying because it's united. we are shown that we're going to be in one of these two scenes. We're either going to be in the heavenly throne room, holy, 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 or we are going to experience the woe, woe, woe of Satan's throne. And this is showing us the true nature of God is that there's no in-between. The true nature of evil and of good is that there's no in-between. You can't be part evil. You're in one scene or the other. And evil is completely united in their rebellion. The second thing that we're going to see is that evil is everywhere. Like, this is the entire earth. And what we see, we see this when John says, we're reminded um, again, that this is not like a chrono chronological version of history that is going to happen in the future. But we're reminded that this is a vision that, that John is seeing and that this is the same events from a different perspective. And so when you look at um, verse 13 again of chapter 8, he says, Then I looked and I heard. So the next thing that happens is in the vision sequence, not in history. 
not in the sequence of history. Because I think we would kind of be comforted a little bit if this were like something that's gonna happen in the future and the Christians were all gone and like we didn't have to endure this. But that's not what John is saying. He's saying, then I looked and I saw something that is happening. This is true now. He's showing us the reality behind the veil. And so it's not just then, but evil is happening now. I don't think we need to be convinced of this anymore. I think we kind of understand this, but maybe our understanding of evil needs to be expanded and deepened a little bit. The other thing that we we don't need explained is what locusts are like. (laughs) Yeah. You guys been outside lately? These cicadas are everywhere. They're everywhere. Like you cannot hide from them. If you go outside, they're going to come and get you. They're going to land on you. And um, it was really funny. Last week after church, there were some kids running around, like, holding them and, like, torturing them. And I was like, oh, these poor, these poor cicadas. They're kind of they're dumb. They're just flying around haphazardly. They, like, get eaten by the slowest birds. Like, they're not really impressive. They're just kind of annoying. So the picture of these locusts that are getting kind of unleashed on the earth is very different. Like the cicadas, they're everywhere and they get into everything. But unlike the cicadas, they're not harmless. They're everywhere, but they also are very focused. They receive a commission. They receive a commission from the evil power that unleashes them. And that commission is ironic because everywhere, everywhere else in scripture, what do locusts do? They come and they eat the plants. They come and they eat the grain. They destroy crops and that affects people. But these locusts get a very specific command not to touch any of the plants, but only go after the people. And they're everywhere. It's all consuming. You are not going to escape these locusts. The third thing that we see about evil is that evil has a powerful leader. In verses one through three, John sees this vision. It it happens at the trumpet. The trumpet sounds. God commands the trumpet to sound, and then a star falls from heaven. And then the star is a person, kind of. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft comes the smoke and these locusts. And then in verse 11, we learn more about this figure. Because it's the king of these locusts. Verse 11 says, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. John is starting to kind of like develop Satan as a character in the story of Revelation. So far, there's only been allusions. There's kind of like been an allusion to someone who's deceiving and who is kind of persecuting. But the letter to the churches, it doesn't say anything about Satan. It talks about the other people who are persecuting the church, but this is the first time in Revelation where we really start to get a picture of Satan on the earth. 
And so God allows Satan to have authority on the earth. That's an important thing to note. That there is kind of like what's called the divine passive, where God is giving him over to the earth. He says he was given, Satan was given the key to the bottomless pit. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to unleash his power on the earth. And God says, okay, I'm going to let you. Because that's what the people of the earth want. They don't want me. They don't want my kingship. They want a different king. And so he just allows people to get what they want. And this is what happens. Satan is given power. And his name describes his motive. So it's not just benign power. He's not just power without intention. His intention is very clearly expressed by his name. His he- in Hebrew, it's Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. There's probably a footnote in your text that shows you that those words mean destroying and destroyer. And so this powerful leader of evil is coming to destroy. Evil has a powerful leader, but he is not all powerful. If you notice, as we were reading this, he's granted this ability as God is pulling back the restraints, but it's not a full pullback. The locusts are only there for five months. And as we get into the sixth trumpet, they only kill a third of the people. So there's still a limit. There's still a restraint. And there's a purpose for all of that. And we'll get to that. The next thing that we see is that evil is dangerous because it's very deceptive. Evil is deceptive. In verse 2, what happens, what comes out of this bottomless pit is this smoke. It's like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. This is imagery that is indicative of deception. It's darkening everything. It's clouding everything. It's allowing things to go unseen. It is confusing people about the true nature of reality. There's kind of this shroud that evil is operating in so that people don't even realize that what is actually destroying them is the evil that they're worshiping and longing for. In verses 7 and 8, we see this description of these locusts. And let me just say a word about the locusts, okay? They're not Apache helicopters, right? Like, this is one of the mistakes that people make when they're interpreting Revelation is that they kind of import modern categories into how they read the text. But this isn't talking about modern warfare in this specific way, right? These aren't like Russian helicopters coming to get the Americans. That's not what's going on here. This is just a picture. It's a symbol of what evil is like. And so once we kind of set ourselves free from that, we don't have to think about like, oh, like we don't have to Google the different types of helicopters that China and Russia and all these different countries have to figure out where this is coming from. No, this is talking about evil universally. And notice what it says. 
in appearance, they were like horses prepared for battle. So again, evil is an army. There's an army, there's a destructive nature that they are going for. But on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Well, crown is a pretty easy symbol. Crown symbolizes a king or authority. So the forces of evil are going to mimic and mock authority. They're going to appear as if they are sovereign. And they're not going to tell you, oh yeah, we're restrained by God. God is still has his hand over us completely and fully. And so there's going to be a tendency to fall in line to the forces of evil because you look and you see the authority that they seem to have. These locusts also appear to have human faces. Evil disfigures the image of God. Locusts are not made in the image of God. Demons are not made in the image of God. But people are. And so part of the deception of evil is it looks appealing. It looks as if it might be good. Their hair is like women's hair. There's something even beautiful and elegant about evil and how these locusts are working. But their teeth are like lions. They will destroy you. They will rip you to shreds. So evil is deceptive. Evil is also extremely dangerous and horrifying because it causes agony. Verse 6 is one of the most troubling verses in this whole chapter. As these locusts are unleashed on these people, they are so tormented that in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. There's an agony, a psychological and spiritual anguish that happens when these locusts attack. Now let me stop for a second and just kind of clarify something. John is using an experience that is common to help us understand the result and the ramifications of evil and worshiping evil. So here's what you shouldn't do with this, is you shouldn't say, oh, I felt like that. I've wanted to die, but I couldn't. And so therefore I must belong to Satan. Therefore I must not belong to the lamb. That's not what the purpose of this passage is. The purpose of that passage is if you've been there, you know how miserable that is. It's some of the most deeply felt misery that is known to human experience. And that is the best way we can describe what happens when evil has its way, that everyone will feel that without any hope of relief. It causes agony. The locusts also are like scorpions. In verses 7 through 10, you see this um, torturous description of how they inflict pain, and it's through the sting of their tails. So scorpions actually are very precise with the amount of venom they inject. And so they don't usually inject enough venom to kill. They just paralyze. They like fresh prey. 
And so they inject the venom and then leave the paralyzed victim for when they want to eat so that it's fresh. Baby scorpions don't have this ability yet, so if you get stung by a baby scorpion, it's actually more dangerous because they just kind of unleash everything. So here's what we learn. This agony is very measured, and it's all about control. Evil is dangerous because it controls you. It paralyzes you. And it's the same way that a scorpion controls their victim with their venom. The first woe is past. That was just the first one. These ramp up each time. So now let's deal with the second woe and see what we can learn from evil. And it's actually simple in some ways. In the sixth trumpet, we learn that evil is overpoweringly violent. So the description of these four angels kind of releasing these four horses, this is all taking place at what John sees as the Euphrates River. So the Euphrates River is to the north of Israel and Judah. And if you remember from um, Kings and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles, some of the prophets, the north is dangerous. Israel and Judah were always worried about the north because that's where the invading armies came from. So when God is judging Israel and Judah, he unleashes these armies of Persia and Babylon into Israel and Judah, and they come running down from the north, downhill, unchecked. And so this is going to elicit the memory of that for everyone who's reading this in that culture. They're going to think of how they were sieged and how they were starving to death because they were totally cut off. They're going to think of the brutality of Babylon when this vision is communicated to them. And as horrifying as it was for Israel to be sieged by those armies, this army is way worse. They're more powerful, and they're completely let loose on the earth, and an unfathomable amount of violence ensues. Picture it. What would it look like for a third of the earth, a third of the people, to be slaughtered in that quick of a time? Billions of people dead. God's showing us, here's what evil wants to do. He's showing John, here's what it would look like if I let go of my hand and evil had its way on the earth. And this, should, this tells us also that evil is dangerous and horrifying because all evil eventually ends in death. These horses are breathing and they're breathing sulfur and smoke and fire. Sulfur and smoke and fire would also kind of serve as a hyperlink to another event in the history um, of the Hebrew Bible, and that is Sodom and Gomorrah. So in Genesis 19, there is no place that is more wicked than Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and the wickedness kind of comes to a boiling point in a really horrific kind of um, sexualized and violent description. And then this is what God does to judge the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 23 of chapter 19, he says, The sun had risen on the earth, and when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land, land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that, that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And so you see what happened. God let go and he allowed Sodom and Gomorrah to do exactly what they wanted to do. And it turned into debauchery and it turned into murder. And it got so evil that God had to wipe the whole thing away. And even the slightest thought of wanting to go back deserved perfect judgment. And you see that with Lot's wife. So this is descriptive of an experience that we are also familiar with, and that is this sudden and untimely death. And this communicates the nature and the danger of evil. Death is an enemy for us all to reckon with. And it is an enemy because it finalizes our position. It finalizes our position between, before God. And for now, there's a restraint. It's only one-third of the population that is given over to it in this vision. But the idea is that this is foreshadowing. This is going somewhere, and that one day, it's going to be fully unrestrained. And so the remaining two-thirds will share in the same fate if they persist in rebelling against God. And this leads to the last thing that we're going to say about evil, and that is that evil makes people numb. So there's two-thirds of those people remaining, and look at how John describes them. The rest of mankind, verse 20, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Even watching a third of the people die like that, it didn't cause any second guesses. Totally numb. We don't even realize it. The people keep worshiping the thing is, that's destroying them. Do you notice that? Like, you can read this and think, oh, God is doing this to evil. And that is true, but he's doing it because he's letting go. And he's letting the forces of evil do what they want to the people who are worshiping them. The idols are killing them, and they keep going back for more. 
they're totally numb. They're recommitting to the very thing that's destroying them. And it's idolatry. Idolatry is simply placing anything on this world or anything at all in the place of God. It can also be bringing something else in to your worship of God and polluting your worship of God with something else. Worshiping anything, even if you think you're still worshiping God, is idolatry. And that is what's happening here. So just a quick note on idolatry, because for us, we have to be really wary of something. Because we think idolatry was something that happened a while ago. But I want to give us some categories to think through for idolatry and something that is kind of a trend in our culture, in probably our lives. And that is that there is this rise of this category called the religious nuns, right? You guys have probably heard about this. Not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, nun. So I don't identify with any religion. So like on a poll, they would say, what religion are you? They would check none. That's how they get that category. And so you might think, oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, that, that's not me. Well, let me kind of flesh that out a little bit more. Because there's kind of three different types of people that do fit into that category. The first is the self-proclaimed spiritual but not religious. So they might see all the like usual religions listed and say, yeah, I'm spiritual, not religious. And so they would check none because they think they're spiritual. And so you can still think, oh, I'm connected to God. I'm just spiritual, not religious. I don't really identify with Christianity, but like, it's okay. I'm just more spiritual and more individual in how I connect with God. The second are what is ironically called the faithful nuns. And so these are people who like are gonna say, no, I don't believe, but then they still go to church and they still participate in a community of faith. And it might be that they're getting something from that community or from that tradition, from that rite, but they don't believe. They're not animated. They're, they're not brought alive by that faith. And so even though they say they don't believe in a higher power, they kind of still live like they do. And then third, and this is the most troubling for us and for me, and this is, um, this is, again, described in that same book, Tara Isabella um, Harton, who described that scene of Macbeth. And she says this. I'm just going to read it. The third group is religious hybrids, people who say they belong to a given religion and believe and practice a portion of it, but they also feel free to disregard elements that don't necessarily suit them or to supplement their official practice with spiritual or ritualistic elements, not to mention beliefs from other traditions. To better explain this particular phenomenon, let's look at a poll that describes the prevalence of new age beliefs defined by the Pew Research, which is who did the poll, as astrology, reincarnation, psychics, and spiritual energy located in physical objects. So about 60% of the religiously unaffiliated believed in at least one of those things. About the same number of self-professed Christians believed in one of those things. A full 29% of that group said that they believed specifically in reincarnation. 
one-third of Christians, self-proclaimed Christians, said that they believed in reincarnation. Any scholar of Christianity would, would agree that that is fundamentally incompatible with orthodox Christian doctrine. So, what is this telling us? It's telling us we're worshiping ourselves at the end of the day, that we are prone to worship ourselves. We're going to pick and choose what is best for us, what feels best for us, not thinking about what is pleasing to God. We don't want God. It doesn't hurt anybody, so it must be acceptable. We've put ourselves in the place of God, and it has raised us above our order in creation, in God's creation. And ironically, when we raise ourselves up to be above God's creation, we also raise up those idols above God's creation. And so I was thinking about this. That description that John gives of idolatry is essentially like, okay, these things are made out of wood and stone, and they can't talk or breathe or walk, and yet you're worshiping them. So there's kind of this irony in raising up an idol. And it would be like this. It might look cute at first for someone to treat a dog as a person in their family, right? Like if they're a puppy and like they're eating dinner and they make a little place setting for the, for the puppy and the puppy's eating, like, okay, that's cute. But as that develops, it's weird. Because in five years, they're going to be yelling at their dog for not taking out the trash, right? They are expecting that dog to be something that it's not meant to be. And it's weird. And so this is idolatry. And so as we see what happens with idolatry, as we see what evil looks like, taking evil seriously means that we're asking ourselves an urgent question, and that is, who do you belong to? Because we know the only source of refuge and safety from evil is in belonging to the Lamb, to being sealed by him, belonging to him. This look behind the veil is not pretty, but it's necessary. Because it shows us that even the most clear picture of evil isn't enough for us. We need something more. We need something beyond ourselves, our own ability, the psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 49, describing the same kind of thing. He says, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. The smallest dose of God's grace is sufficient to pull you out of the pits of evil. So when we respond to this, we need to do two things. First is ask yourself that question, who do you belong to? If you can't answer that, then Go to the Lord and beg him to confirm to you that you belong to him. And that only happens when you trust in Christ because he is the one who ransoms our soul from the kingdom of darkness.
And if you are a Christian, repent of your idolatry. Seek it out. Hunt it. Join the spirit in killing it before it kills you. And then secondly, we live as witnesses. We live as witnesses to the reality that as terrifying, as bad as evil is, we have a savior that delights to pull people out of that and into his family. We are a family of redeemed idolaters and sinners. And so we live as witnesses to this dying world that that is possible. And it's only possible through the grace of God. And so in a couple of minutes, we're going to sing Amazing Grace, a song that's really familiar to you. And I want you to focus on this first verse as you're singing it. And think about why grace is amazing. And not you, who's amazing. It's because what you've been saved from, friends, and what you've been saved to. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Please pray with me. Father, we are so thankful that you are stronger, <laughs> that you are the only sovereign being. And Lord, even as we are confused by what we see, we find rest in knowing that you are able to rescue us. You are able to save us. You are able to save whomever you want. And it's not dependent on us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would continue to work through our knowledge of just how horrific evil is, but that we wouldn't stop there. Just as the story of Revelation continues, that we would push on and see how good you are. And that we would be more captivated by the good and the true and the beautiful than the frightening and the ugly and the terrifying. God, we need your spirit to help us do this, and we pray in the name of Jesus for it. Amen.